You unlock this benefit with the key of Patreon. Beyond is another dimension. A dimension of thought. A dimension of speculation. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both waffle and substance. Of things and ideas. You've just crossed into the podcast zone. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to our Twilight Discussions. We are on to our 14th episode, and uh, we're going to be talking about John Lithgow, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Uh, oh, no, sorry, it's different. It's third, third Rock from the Sun. <laughs> we are going third from the sun with this episode of nuclear, the threat of nuclear war and uh, space travel. So, Julian, what do you think of Third from the Sun? I love this episode. Um, mm. I don't think it's as good as Walking Distance, which is my favorite so far. Um, I probably don't like it as much as 16mm Shrine, but it's it's right up there with, you know, my favorite so far. Um, I remember this, and, and you were talking in a previous episode about how sort of there are episodes that sort of refine the same concept or, mm. you know, because they're they're generating so many episodes, they have a similar twist. This is the first of a bunch of episodes that the twist is, aha, we didn't tell you that the setting was was not Earth uh, yeah. or was Earth. Um, and so I, I obviously it's a it's a simple episode on some level of just sort of playing on fears of uh, nuclear destruction. Those fears are still grounded. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nuclear Armageddon is still possible. And now we have climate Armageddon, too, to worry about. So yeah. um, I really quite like this episode. What about you? No, I, I agree. I think there's this, this something about this episode that's just, again, um, one of the sort of things I'm, I'm feeling more from these, these episodes now is I'm enjoying the concepts, but I'm also enjoying the way they're presented. <clears throat> and this has got a real feel to it. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> it taps into that, that fear of the nuclear, you know, the nuclear holocaust and everything. But also, like they do scenes like you know, they they've clearly now saying, okay, we haven't got to just do static cam up front. Like they are, they're trying to do different things, and they've done that throughout. But <coughs> so sorry, uh, when they have the bit they're playing cards, and that you know, the, the, there's a tension in the room. Like it's fil- filmed from high up, it's filmed at a slight angle. Like they're making you feel uncomfortable watching it. Um, you know, I mean, parts of this could feel silly. Like the, there's the guy. Um, that's snooping on them and stuff like you know he could yeah. feel like a, he could feel a little he has a little bit of a comedy thing to him but like he could feel silly but the moment he comes in and into into sort of um, interferes with the the card game and they've got the information on that bit of paper like that's really tense like this episode's got really ramps up the tension and I'm really enjoying that that again like it's a sci-fi concept you know obviously the reveal at the end but they're now like on a the content's going to be good. Like we are going to tap into a genre or a tone or a theme, and we're going to really ramp that up. So no, I was loving this. It's sort of like this idea of these scientists that sort of like privy to information, mm. um, and they need to escape. Now the, the, there are there is something we'll call out for something else we've reviewed. This felt a little bit when worlds collide, mm. um, and I was a little bit curious as to like these scientists. Like we've been setting this up for months. And I've got a contact on the uh, you know on the ground that's going to let us to the ship. And I'm like, but what have you told them you're doing this for? Because right. these people are basically helping you escape a world that they're going to have to live and watch the destruction. So, um, 
Yeah, that's a good point. And I also wonder about that superior who who interrupts the card game and is snooping mm -hmm. on them. He so clearly indicates that he knows their entire plan. And and yeah. it winds up that he is there at the, the rendezvous mm -hmm. with the with the ship. But um you know, he says, you know, like, hey, look at those stars. You ever thought about living on one of them? You know, like, I have no doubt you have. You know, like, he clearly, and he says, like, you'd better not do anything else tonight. Like, he knows everything. <laughs> and it's clear that they have snooped, like, they do this, you know, in the basement of trying yeah, to yeah. Uh, run a, a machine to talk together. So it's clear that there's surveillance on them. Mm. Um as it was to a, to a limited degree at the uh, Manhattan Project, um, although they still managed to have a spy. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it is a little, you know, we never really find out how he knows all of that. But mm. I'm willing to, it does, I don't think that needs to be explained, right? I mean, he's the supervisor. They have surveillance methods. It it, yeah, it feels to me like it's implied that like he's got it from the contacts because it's you know they mm. say like you know you've got a contact and then they've changed the guard on the gate and this other stuff. So it feels to me like someone has broken and given up the information, which is why the guard is changed on the gate and this other stuff. So yeah, you it's sort of implied. Um, I, I like the I love how he talks to them. Like you say, that sort of like I'm basically telling you, I'm giving you an out. Yeah, you know, like look. I'm I'm really trying to make it obvious that I know you you know that what you're planning, and I'm telling you without telling you don't do it. You know I'm trying. He keeps giving them out so then they don't take it. But however, I am sort of there's something else that this the way this guy talks, uh, the, the villain of the piece, and he's at one point they talk about this and they've got 48 hours until nuclear annihilation. And it, it, one of the clever things is they never say Russia; they just say the other side. Mm -hmm. And, and obviously, because obviously feeds into the the reveal at the end. Um, and this thing about the up, the over, and the kapow—that's it. And they, then they have this whole thing of like, you know, well, you know, we'll, we'll be flattening them first. Well, they could also launch. Well, yeah, but not as not as accurate, not as big, and da da da. So it's sort of like you know, be thirty-five million instead of sixty million or whatever. And then and then he says it says that's not that sounds like defeatist talk. <laughs> and it's sort of like. Well, no, it's it's annihilation talk is what it is. But I love the fact that it's like, well, no, no, but we'll have killed more of those than they killed of us, and that's a win. And that sort of feels like very sort of, I can imagine that being the tone of certain things around that era of like, yeah, we know there's this idea of mutually assured destruction, so it's a case of getting there first so that some survive. Um, and this yeah. idea of defeatist, defeatist talk felt very sort of prominent in the Cold War rhetoric. Right. And, you know, I, I, I really like what this episode has to say. I mean, and I think that we, especially in talking about sci-fi films of the 50s, there is this sort of constant trope of fear of nuclear war and addressing mm. it in the fiction. Um, you know, having said that, like, OK, uh, but... First of all, I mean, it's clear that what they're producing are H-bombs, right? So so when you talk about the H-bomb, which was developed in the 50s, its sheer potential for destruction was of such a, you know, an order of magnitude greater than the atomic bomb that it seemed like, okay, an atomic bomb could destroy a city with like, mm -hmm. I think it's you know, roughly 15 kilo megatons. But... Um, 
the H bomb was just unthinkable. And uh, having so many of them, you know, that was really a kind of escalation. And the other thing is that, uh, with with one prominent exception, the scientists who worked on the Manhattan Project um, all testified against the H bomb and were prominently mm. against the H bomb. You know, and you can easily imagine. Um, the scientists who worked on the Manhattan Project, knowing that they had the secret that, you know, pretty soon this was probably going to be used in war and it was going to be dropped and this terrible thing was going to happen. And, but at least that was that was war and we were fighting for survival uh, with the Japanese in theory. Having said that, the H-bomb just seemed like, you know, those same scientists said that was war. This makes no sense. Being able to destroy the entire planet and just escalating and escalating and escalating the kilotons, which we're still doing to to mm. slowly and to some degree, um, is is just madness. And so that kind of military thinking, there were plenty of people in the Pentagon. I mean, Dr. Strangelove reflects this, who did have that mentality of like, mm. you know, look, yeah. We'll, we'll probably contain our losses to half the population of the U.S. On the other hand, we'll win, you know, yeah. and better to get this over with sooner rather than later, the, because later on we'll just have, you know, the, the next bomb that's, that's well, more damaging. There's definitely there's definitely that thing in this, and I feel that they, they sort of acknowledge that, of like, well, we, we've got to have it first so that the other side doesn't, you know, it's that, that sort of seems to be the, the, the key to it. Uh, and I agree. It's it's interesting because the other thing as well is like you say about the the, the Manhattan Project and and this acknowledgement of what it is they were creating. <clears throat> I like the fact that the character in this, the father figure, the main protagonist, he has a conversation with his daughter. She says to him, "Like, do you do you not like your job?" And he's like, "It's not really about liking it. You know, it's a job. You know, it does it. I do these things." But he he says it, it comes this conversation about responsibility. And he's clearly trying to sort of like, you know, remove this element of responsibility of himself because he's like, he knows what's coming in the part he's played in it. And he's like, well, you know, you think about these things, they've all got a thousand parts. And for each part, like, you know, there are 60 people or 60 to 100 people that take part in it. And mm. so really, I'm, ju I'm just a cog in a wider machine. So how much responsibility can I really have for what's coming? And it's it's this thing of trying to distance himself from the fact that it's like, oh, no, well, you clearly played a part in this. Um uh, and, and you know that's added to by this idea that this is clearly not the only thing they're working on, because it, it opens with them going through a gate and there's a security guard checking and he's going, oh yeah, you're this, you're that, and it's like it says um, nuclear war, germ warfare, da da mm. da. Well, they're playing, they're playing, they've got their fingers in lots of bowls, you know, lots of pies. So that bit in itself was really like, you know, Christ, that's really scary. Um. It's like the Armageddon factory. Mm, <laughs> basically, and, yeah. And we were still working on, you know, like germ warfare stuff back then. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, that's really messed up. And I, uh, But I think about, like, the rise of authoritarianism that, you know, mm. we're experiencing, that, you know, we experienced in, in the 30s and that, you know, seems to always be with us, and especially for a certain segment of the population uh, within our brains to sort of like follow the chieftain of the tribe long after the chieftain has made it clear that he's going to get us all killed um, or he's just a bad guy. Um, you know, I think about, you know, all the stories that we've read about and heard about of sort of, you know, the dead man switch and, you know, the 
you know, Abel Archer and, you know, all the times where the radar screwed up and it was one person, mm. you know, in, in some cases a, a Soviet and in other cases an American who decided they were not going to be the one to start the eradication of the world. And mm -hmm. I think about all of those people working at nuclear test silos, uh, you know, who know they might have to turn a key and mm -hmm. follow through on commands. Um, the weight this puts on people and how do you live with it? And how do you, you know, you know, how do you live with it except to say, well, I'm a cog in a machine. I'm only following orders, you know, uh, and, and at some point, you know, I mean, you know, this is Eichmann in Jerusalem, right? This is Hannah Arendt. How, how do you take responsibility for that? And at what point do you say, uh, I'm not going to gun down civilians. I'm not going to be the one to flip this trigger. Well, even at a micro level, this has been dealt with. You know, they've had to deal with this. So even during the First World War, it was, you know, when they did firing squads, <clears throat> you'd have a firing squad of six men. They would, one of them was given an, an empty rifle, but they wouldn't told who. So they could all sort of justify and go, well, you know, I may have had the rifle that didn't have the bullet in it. So, you know, this, they've had to deal with these questions on a micro. Now you look at it on a macro level of saying, like, yeah, I contributed to the war machine that's going to eradicate an Earth or a planet. I, I do think about the same thing, you know, this thing, especially you say, you know, the joke, you you know, it, it's made a bloody joke of at times, but they call it like, what's it called? the nuclear football in, mm. you know, you hear in these films. Yeah, that's that's just the codes, you know. They'll say like, "Oh, the president's got the big red button." Yeah, it, it doesn't work like that. Like he right. he he, you know, he has to enter a code. And but like you say, it still comes down to someone activating something, and they're the ones at the, at the end of the process that are like, "Yeah, I'm the one that's going to be destroying click millions of lives." Um, well, and, and there's been attempts to address that too, right? Both with the dead mm. man switch and also with you know. Uh, ways to, you know, just like with a firing squad, ways to uh, force people to, like, you know, trigger something that eventually will retaliate automatically, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, the system is not subject to our soldiers maybe not obeying orders. Yeah. Which is terrifying. I mean, that is even worse, right? Well, yeah, you, you're one step away from automation. You know, you're one step away from automation. And from automation, you're one step away from Skynet, let's be honest. Um, well, I, or War Game, you know, yeah, with yeah. The, you know, the computer doing it. Yeah, well, that's what we just call Matthew Broderick. He'll solve it. That's not a problem. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, but this ep I, I do like the fact that this episode is, is it's you know, it deals with these ideas of the responsibility what part have i played in this but but also you know the the fact that the, the villain of the piece this guy but this guy that's watching over them like he's coming from a, almost like well no like you said it's coming from the, the that view of like no, this is a good thing like, we have to win we are the right people and so if we eradicate all of them before and they eradicate like half of us then we win and that's a good thing and, and any other talk is unpatriotic and, you know, I see that, and especially the snooping as well and the stuff like, you know, obviously I know McCarthyism was sort of was gone by this point, but, you know, the fear of the communist invader and the fear that, you know, your neighbour being communist was still a threat. Like, they still believed this stuff. And well into the 60s, people were being shipped and, and given up. So the idea that someone could give up, give you up for something, so they had to put, like, surveillance. There's a paranoia to this episode that I just is, is pervasive. 
uh, and is, is presented really. It's not. It's not just in the dialogue and the theme. It's presented on screen, um, and it, it you know it it plays like a spy film or a thr- like an espionage thriller. Mm-hmm. It's great. Really well done. Yeah, and I just want to say that you know, like that twist that this isn't on Earth, right? Um, you know, obviously that's a twist. It's also you know, you see it coming. And I think the great, you know, they say, like you say, the other side, right? And then mm. they say this world, you know, mm. where you think somebody would say the world, right? Um, but then you get to the ship that's going to take them away. And it's a classic flying saucer. Yeah. I love that moment. I just, I adore that moment uh, so much. And then that really tells you what you need to know if you had any doubt and then they are flying well, to earth you but... say that you say that right but i went the other way until the reveal when i was like oh it makes total sense why you're in a flying saucer but when i saw the flying saucer i was like oh how quaint they think that that's what an you know that's what's going to allow us to remove leave our atmosphere thinking you know not thinking the cylindrical big rocket was the way to go I was thinking, oh, that's really quaint. But then when it tacks on, I was like, oh, okay, now I completely get it. So it's a it's a great little nod. It's a fantastic little moment. Well, and you know, I found myself thinking about like parallel development, you know, and theories of of parallel development on other planets. I, I do think that they have a very weird phone. There are a few objects mm. that are supposed to be a little different from ours, right? Very, very subtle, not enough to clue you in early, mm. but enough to kind of like in retrospect, because obviously it's, it's uh, you know, a 1950s or a 1960s mm. home, cars, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, I do about that parallel development, um, you know, there is the Fermi paradox and the question of mm. sort of why have we not observed or been contacted by extraterrestrials? And there are a lot of questions, but um, a lot of answers and theories about why that would be. But the problem is essentially, you know, posed by Fermi that, you know, given the number of stars in the universe, you know, you take a back of the napkin approximation, you know, uh, how many have life, then how many would develop, uh, you know, our level of intelligence, how many would get to the point of, you know, space flight, et cetera, et cetera. One of the theoretical barriers to that is um, how many will not destroy themselves. Mm. And so the it's a very real scientific thing to say the fact that we ha- I mean, there are lots of different theories about this, but to say the fact that we like if we find life on Mars, if we find, you know, microbial life um, that isn't a product of our contamination that's a really bad sign for our survival, actually, uh, because it means that's not a threshold. You know, the yeah. life develops easy. So there's more life in the galaxy. Why haven't we been contacted? So the idea that we will destroy ourselves by atomic warfare or climate change or something like this before we become a Star Trek-like, you know, or, or whatever version going into space that's a real threshold, and it's kind of heartbreaking to think we got away from this planet and we're heading to one that is possibly going to destroy itself too. So well, that's sort of the point because it says that, doesn't it, at the end of it, sort of you know about the um, uh, leaving a planet to go to another planet, and this idea of sort of like you know, is it um, you know is it is it sort of the right thing to them, um, and they, they are leaving that behind. But it's true. I mean, the, the other thing this points out in, in, in another barrier is the distance. Mm. 
there's a really great line in this when he says about he looks like the sort of the porthole or whatever it's got the viewer and he says all those stars they look so far away and the, 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 the guy was like yeah they are <laughs> they're a long way away um but that's all we're going to that's the one we're trying to reach and it's, it's sort of you know it says it's 11 this is what's funny it's 11 million light years away mm-hmm. and you know well that that is quite a long way to go um you know to get to earth and he goes that's the other barrier it's like well yeah how do you travel that distance in space you know if you even if you travel at light speed which is impossible like you, you're still going to take so much time so there's so much things but but that's the thing the twist on this is, is a great little twist i really enjoy it you know they go on to become they go on to live in suburban america in you know the real 1950s um or they crash land and they actually find that they've landed in um, Salem in the in the mid 1500s, <laughs> and they'll get burnt as witches, which is a tragic end. <laughs> so, you know, swings and roundabouts. The one final thing I'll add is that technically 11 million miles, they're within our solar system. I was just checking that, and I was like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm going to check that. That that seemed a lot closer than I thought. You know, <laughs> that's weird. Uh, but yes, anyway, uh, it, this is a really good episode again. It's another good. Like this series is now starting to hit some really good. A really good groove. A couple of weak ones in the, this last sort of six or seven, but these last few have been really, really good, and I'm really enjoying them. So, anyway, any last final thoughts, Julian, before we uh, jump off this one? I'm good. Okay, well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us on our Twilight Journey, and we shall see you on the next episode. <laughs>